0: everyone, welcome to the Gatekeepers podcast. In this episode, one of our leaders at Gatekeepers, James Pendleton, brings a word on the Father Heart of God. If you want to know more about Gatekeepers, visit gatecityatl.com slash gatekeepers. Enjoy. Alright, so, as Casey said, my name's James. Uh, Some of you probably know me, some of you probably recognize me um, from playing bass occasionally, (laughs) but um, just some background information before I get into the message. Uh, I work for Gwinnett County. I'm an engineer uh, there, Um, which means that I went to Georgia Tech, and that's Georgia Tech's everybody's favorite, right? Yeah, I figured that most of the people here would not like me because of that, so it's okay. I understand, but I'm married to Becca, like I said, Um, about seven or eight years. We moved from Colorado And when we moved here, one of the first ministries that we stepped into was Forerunner Church when we were back at the old Collins Hill campus. And I ran sound and did a lot of the production stuff with Ovidio. And Becca basically ran everything. So there's that. Um, And then since then, I've started playing on sets. Like I said, I was playing here. Um, But ultimately, I'm really excited to share this topic that I feel like the Lord has highlighted to me. Um, what I feel like the Lord has been speaking into our community at large has been the message of the love of God in general, um, but specifically what I want to talk about tonight is the love of the Father or the father heart of God it's a It's a key biblical message for this this house. so I just want to uh, take my opportunity to um, re-emphasize the importance and how God is truly a father. So, whether it's generally positive, negative, or being absent, everybody has an experience of a father. Just in general, everybody has some experience of what an earthly father is. So, unto that, everybody also has beliefs about God. So, uh, A.W. Tozer says, the most important thing about a person is what they think of when they think of God. Okay, so with that, let's jump in. There's going to be two scriptures that I really want you guys to focus on. So mark them if you have a paper Bible. If not, just jump to them when we go to it. Uh, scriptures Ephesians 1 and Luke 15 are the two that we're going to really look at. There'll be a bunch of others peppered in, but those are the, the big ones that we want to focus on. So starting off, um, let's discuss what, what our view of God means. Okay, so... The way we perceive the Heavenly Father is usually dramatically influenced by our experiences of earthly fathers and father figures. Um, I've personally found it much easier um, to embrace the love of Jesus and have often felt distanced from the Heavenly Father. So personally, I felt like I've had a great relationship with my own dad. Um, Much of the man that I am today is attributed to who he was and what I saw him do, but though that relationship is still continuing to be positive, to this day, I've realized that there was a key relational aspect that was missing, and that relational aspect was emotional connectedness. So through this, that influenced my perception of the Father, and led me to believe that He was only interested in the things that I could do, but He was not concerned with my interests, my desires, or my emotions. So, it's all a work in progress. I'm leaning into it. Um, preparing this message is really helpful. But I'm learning more of what the Father's love is. And then it's, like I said, it's a work in progress. We're still, everybody's learning and growing. And it's a continual thing until eternity. And then even then. So, like I said, we all have views of God as a father. And most of them are related to our experiences of our, our earthly fathers or father figures. This is how God set it up. This isn't like a mistake. This is what he intended. God was, his intention was for godly parents to reveal him and teach us who he was. So in the sense he's going to, our godly parents would do things and act in a way that would reveal attributes of who God is as the father. But, and then they would also teach us Bible that would say, hey, here's, here's what the father says. I'm not perfect, but this is really who Jesus, or this is really who the father is. A similar thing to this is we see this in marriage with Jesus, how a human husband loves a human wife is the way that God, the, the, the passage in Corinthians saying, love your wife as the church. So he's set relationships up, earthly relationships. He set them up to declare his nature and character. We experience who he is and bring that out of each other. At the most godly and accurate level that he intended, we reveal God to each other. So um, I don't know if anybody's heard of Wellspring. There's an interesting thing. They call um, uh, calling out the glory or uh, whisper of the Father. There's both of those things. But basically what it is is somebody can come to you and say something, and to them it means nothing, but it's basically the Father saying something through them, and it just impacts your heart, and it's really deep and meaningful. So that's kind of the, the idea is that people... Regardless of what they, where they're at, they can speak things to you and give you experiences that reflect who God is. <clears throat> so, however, oftentimes with our earthly relationships, there's negative experiences. And we, as broken humans, often hurt each other. And then we project those negative experiences onto the Father And then our internal internal image of God becomes distorted. So this often leads us to change the truth of God as being a kind and loving father with a lesser image of our earthly fathers or earthly father figures. This results in it being difficult for us to receive and live out the reality that God is fully accepting of us and loves us unconditionally. So many people have an internal message also That tells them that they don't measure up, that they're not good enough, and they can't trust others. This is a pretty common thing, and we'll kind of dissect that a little bit further later on. But that internal message leads to us having a general view that God is disappointed in us or mad at us. So that result of the exchanging the truth of who God is and how our experiences that we've had have shaped what we believe about the Father... So the reason we have these internal messages is because we don't fully understand the love of the Father. We don't have a proper understanding of what the Bible says, what Jesus says, and we don't have proper experiences of who the Father is. So, before we move to the next point, just want to reemphasize, kind of like I said, ultimately we should let God define who he is instead of letting people define who God is. So, and the way that we do this is we're going to look at who God is in the Word, who Jesus reveals God to be, the Father to be. And then, eventually, once we start to work through some of those things, and even before that, because the Holy Spirit's constantly ministering to us, our personal experiences is as God as the Father. So, you cannot fully understand and embrace the love of Jesus as a burning, jealous, loving bridegroom if you do not understand and embrace the heart of the Father who loves you unconditionally, without judgment, or criticism. Let me say that again. You cannot fully understand and embrace the love of Jesus as a burning, jealous, loving bridegroom if you do not understand and embrace the heart of the Father who loves you unconditionally without judgment or criticism. So, understanding the bridal paradigm, which is what I was talking about as Jesus being burning, jealous, and a loving bridegroom. That's the bridal paradigm half. The other half of that is the father the heart of God. There are two sides of the love of God. One's not greater than the other. One's not lesser than the other. They're both God expressing love towards us. A good way to think of it is the love of God is so expansive and vast that he can't express it with just one method. He has to use multiple methods so that we can actually understand the depth of the love that he has for us. So like I said earlier, first, personally for me, it started back in like 2015, 2016 when I did the internship. It was really easy for me to understand and believe and experience Jesus as a bridegroom and Jesus' love for me. But that's not the complete picture. I'm not getting everything about God's love in that. I'm missing the key part of the love of the Father. And we can't just pick one over the other, like I said. We'll see as we continue through the Scripture, God revealing himself in many ways, but a primary way is as a Father. It's essential for all of us to understand and experience him as a Father, and we can't get past that. We see in Scripture that it was always the Father's desire to draw you into relationship with the Son. So John 6 says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So we see in John 6, no one's going to come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. And when we see the Father's love is present even when we experience Jesus' love. Because of that relationship right there, we are experiencing the Father's love because we're experiencing Jesus' love. Because we can't meet Jesus without the Father's love. So John, uh, Jesus also said in John 9 that he only does and sees what he hears the Father say and do, right? So all of the love that we're experiencing, like during worship, I saw a lot of you guys and myself, we're experiencing the love of Jesus, but that's not different or less than the love of the Father. We not, might not experience it that way, but it, it's, it's no different. It's like... We can't experience that love without the Father's love. So, that was the prerequisite is that the Father loved us so much. And we'll get into that a little bit further. So, like I said, if you're like me and the Father's love can be hard to receive, believe, um, let's let the scriptures instruct us and the Father's love, uh, how the Father loves us and draws us. So John 14, let me read it real quick. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have known me, you have known my Father also. And from now on, you you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I not been with you so long and yet you do not know me, Philip? He who has has seen me As seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the work. Believe me, and I am am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes me, the works that I do, he will also do, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father." And, whenever, uh, and then whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, the Father may be, uh, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you the helper that you may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, but it, because it neither sees, uh, sees him nor knows him, but you know him." for he dwells with you and will be with you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. So I think we forget that the Holy Spirit and the Father and Jesus are, are not separate. They're all part of the Trinity. They're all God. And this passage, John 14, shows us that they work together in relationship to reveal each other. Jesus and the Spirit reveal the Father together. We also see from this passage that the Holy Spirit being with us is a way that God reveals himself as a father. He doesn't leave us orphans, but the father sent the Holy Spirit to live into it, live in us. Later on, we'll talk about how the Holy Spirit is what gives our heart the cry, "Abba, Father." So in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of sonship and the spirit of acceptance. So this all ties back to John 14 we see the Father sends the Holy Spirit to reveal who God is as a Father and that we're His children. All right, so we've talked about our view of God and the importance of the Father heart. So now we're going to shift a little bit and we're going to start talking about the orphan mentality. Has anybody heard about or heard orphan mentality before? People know what it is? Okay. All right, so I'll just give a quick breakdown of it, just so we understand. So, specifically what I'm talking about, orphan mentality is our specific belief that we do not have a father and we are alone. And as a result of that belief, we change the way that we live and relate to others. So, as we go through these points, and I describe orphan mentality, let's allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and highlight anything that we, that we might relate to in the orphan mentality. So, it's kind of like a of like a stepped thing so you kind of do one thing and then kind of fall into another thing and it kind of go progressively down further until you're like it's a a spectrum it's not you can be living somewhat in the orphan mentality or you can be really in the orphan mentality so let's kind of talk about kind of step through these and talk about how they uh, see if we can relate to any of these things that i talk about so fear submission to authority or authority figures Many times, simply a fear or distancing yourself toward male authorities uh, or authority in general. So that'd be like the first step. That'd be like the, the, the lowest measure if there is a measure of orphan mentality. <clears throat> the next step would be um, that, distancing yourself towards male authorities or authorities in general would result in a closed spirit. The heart becomes closed between leadership and unintentionally closed towards God. God is constantly leading us. So if we... Start pushing away authority, we're going to start pushing away God. A closed spirit will lead to unhealthy independence. An independent spirit causes you to trust and rely solely upon yourself because you fear others will let you down. An independent spirit will often cause us to hide or deny the pain in our heart. We do not want to allow people to know our weakness and pain because we're afraid of being vulnerable and we don't want to expose, be exposed as weak. So that'd be another step. Kind of see how it's starting to get more intense, getting deeper down. <clears throat> Many times, those operating in this way will control their relationships through anger, passivity, or isolation. All of these mechanisms that we use to shield ourselves from intimacy with others, and we shield ourselves from potentially, uh, the potential of being hurt or exposed. So that will ultimately lead to these last two points. So the, the, the step before the last one is that we'll begin to live in a superficial manner in our relationships with others. Though many people may know us, nobody will truly know us. And then ultimately, where well, this will lead is we end up feeling alone and isolated even when we're around family and friends. So, I'm not up here saying, I've conquered this. I fixed all of this. I'm good. I see myself in many of these steps. Like, there's many of these things that I do. So, it's, not, it, it's, a, it's a work in progress, like I said earlier. We, we continually um, relation with the Father to learn more of who He is and His Spirit so that we can work through these, stuff, these things and ultimately get some level of freedom okay so when you have an orphan mentality it's likely that you'll find comfort in things earthly things rather than the identity your identity in god and relationship with him so let me talk about four examples real quick so probably pretty common especially in um, western culture possessions finding security in things everybody likes things i like things I really like things. Uh, The next one is passions. So addiction to alcohol, drugs, food, immorality. Now the important thing as we go through this, like things aren't necessarily bad. That's not what we're talking about. We're not saying don't go buy things, live, you know, uh, as a hermit in the woods and don't talk to anybody. That's kind of the opposite of what we're talking about. But So possessions aren't bad. What's bad is using those things to find comfort and using them to isolate yourself from God, essentially. So instead of going to Jesus or going to the Father and saying, hey, this bad thing happened to me, you go to food or you go to the mall and buy something. Or the next one is position. Finding acceptance by being seen or obtaining the praise of men. And the last one's power being in control of your own life and destiny or controlling others. So, like I said before, for the other points, I can see myself, especially in various seasons, to a different degree in all of these things. I've indulged in all of these things in an attempt to find that comfort that I should have gotten from the Father. All right, let's recap Pause there and imagine this, okay? So you're introduced to someone and immediately they decide that you're someone, uh, that you're something that you're the exact opposite of. So let's say you're the nicest person, you always go up and greet people and you say hi to everybody, but this person was told from somebody else that you're not nice and that you're mean and that you don't like people. So it's the complete opposite of who you actually are. That doesn't make sense, right? This is the same way, or in this same way, this is how the experience that we have with people relate and affect and distort our image of God. So, these key relationships have been set up to declare the true nature of God. Parents, marriage, spiritual mentors, things like that. They have been set up to declare the true nature of God, but there's no way that they can be completely accurate. They're not God, they're people, right? So since we're interacting with broken people, the images that we are shown do not fully reflect who the Father is. So in order to combat the orphan mentality, we must have a proper understanding of the traits the Father embodies. Therefore, we will have to allow God to tell us who he is instead of the experiences that we've had in life. So again, the three ways that we're going to have God instruct us. Who God is in the Word, who God reveals, or who Jesus reveals Him to be, the Father that is, and then our, our personal experiences of the Father, okay? So let's get into something that is less sad, but in, it's, it'll still make you cry, but it'll be in a different way. It's great. We're going to talk about the true traits of the Father, who He actually is, okay? So the traits that we're going to talk about is He's the Father that chose you, He's the father that doesn't judge you. He's a proud, loving father. He's the father that rejoices over you. And he's the father that has made us heirs. So first, the father who chose you. So, let's read, this is Ephesians 1. I told you to go there, right? So let's do Ephesians 1, okay? We're going to step through this. So I'll read it first and then we'll step through it. So blessed be the Father, or excuse me, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoptions, uh, to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praises of the glory of His grace, by which He has made us accepted in the Beloved. Okay. So that's Ephesians one. Uh, First, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. So, when it says that he chose us before time began, so this means that you've always been wanted by the Father. So the Father doesn't have a beginning, right? Like, he's the uncreated God. So this, this is what we're talking about here. We're not talking about, okay, the moment you were born or the moment you were conceived, the father's like, oh yeah, I love them. Before anything else was created, the father knew what you would be, when you would be, and how you would be. And you have always been wanted by the father. So then it says that we should be Holy. Being holy speaks of the Father's desire that you would be set apart as his own and for him to clothe you in his glory. So, this kind of, the illustration that I was thinking about for this is back, so this is how Adam lived with God, back in the garden. Adam was holy. He was walking with God in the garden. He was communing in intimacy with God until the fall, right? So this has always been God's plan because he set it up at the beginning this way. So he wants you to be holy so that he can be close to you and clothe you in glory. All right, next part, that we should be blameless. This means we are living before the Lord without a sense of shame. This has nothing to do with what you do, but it is gifted through His grace and through His righteousness. Let me say that again. This has nothing to do with what you do, but is gifted through His grace and His righteousness. You are currently living before the Lord without a sense of shame. From his side, for sure. The father is not looking at you and saying, oh, what you did was so shameful. That, that's not even a thought in his mind. All right, next spot, before him. This mean, means God desires a close relationship with you. He has always wanted to be near him, or he's always wanted you to be near him. Just like Adam in the garden, way at the beginning when he first set everything up, he wanted to be near you. In love, he predestined us. So when God dreamed of you, now remember, we already talked about this, when God dreamed of you from the beginning, well, not from the beginning because there is no beginning, so when God dreamed of you, he just exists, God exists, and at that moment, or there was no moment, he just, he dreamed of you, right? So he dreamed of you. He also dreamed of the way to win your heart and be in relationship with you. The Father has been pursuing you by every means necessary. It's a dream of his heart to win your heart and be in close relationship with you. <clears throat> Next spot predestined to adoption. It was always the Father's plan to bring you near by whatever means. Since the beginning, He desired that you would say yes and be His child. We kind of messed it up a little bit. Man, kind did. So He had to create. He already knew the plan, but he had to follow through with that plan. But he always wanted you since the beginning. He desired that you would say yes and be his child. Next part. Because of the good pleasure of his will, when envisioning this entire plan, and the plan being all of creation, God considered what would bring him the most joy. In everything that he considered, all of the options in all of creation, everything, all of the animals, the earth, the universe, think of the expansiveness of the universe, and then bring it back down to you. In all of creation, the father determines that the thing that would bring him the most joy would be having a close father-child relationship with you. So we were talking through this yesterday, and if you and I got a sense of something, and it was like, if you get if you hear me reading this, and it bounces off your heart, or it's hard to receive, that it might mean that you have stuff that you believe about God that isn't true, you have those blocks in your heart, stuff that we were talking about before, where I'm saying this say I'm saying the opposite of what you're you've experienced in life. I'm saying the things that make no sense to you because the, the worldly expectation is what you've experienced here on earth. But God is not of earth. This is what the word says. So it's truth that is available to us to help us believe who God is. If we disagree, disagree with this truth, that's, that this is revealing, we can repent, ask for healing, and um, ask for help from the Holy Spirit to believe what's true. Like I said, it's a process. It's not going to be something that you say tonight. Hey, Holy Spirit, fix. Maybe He does. He He can. That'd be great. But it's a process usually. All right. Let's step to the next part. He made us accepted. So you are therefore fully accepted by Him. He made you, He made us accepted. We're accepted even before you did anything, before you were able to offer God anything, the moment that you said yes, you became fully accepted by God. All right, last part. In the beloved, you are the one that God has set his affection and desire on. Each one of you, he has set his affection and desire on. Your greatest identity in life is accepted and beloved. He wanted to be in, relation with, in relationship with you so much that it was reasonable for him to send Jesus to die, for you, to die for your sins so that you could say yes to Jesus and you could be accepted immediately. It's that simple. When you said yes to Jesus, you were accepted. All right, so that was the first one. Let's go to the next one, which is a father who doesn't judge you. So oftentimes, we perceive Jesus as being tender and welcoming while we perceive the father as being critical or severe. He's the God of the Old Testament. He's angry. He's mean. He judges people, right? Many times, our interactions with our earthly fathers who have been critical or judgmental have created this paradigm. So from our view of things that we've heard about the Father and then also from our critical or judgmental uh, Father figures on earth have helped create this image of Him. So the truth that the Scripture offers is actually the direct opposite of this mentality. He is not critical nor judgmental. And we can see this truth in John 5. So let me read John 5. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So his love is not based upon your performance. Someone who judges you you will love you when you do well and not love you when your performance is poor. But that's not what we see in John 5. So important side note, if John 5 makes you think that Jesus' Jesus's love is judgmental, that's not what it's saying either. So remember, Jesus is part of the same Trinity that we were talking about. He and the Father are one. So let's read Romans 8 to kind of clear up Jesus as judgmental. So verse 33, who shall bring charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who, con- who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. So this is saying Jesus is the one who died for us to be made right with God. And then in John 5, the one we read before that, says that the Father handed all judgment to the Son. So, the, for, um, so from the Father, we don't have to fear that he is judgmental, of, uh, he's not being judgmental of you, and he's not harsh. But we are also justified by Jesus, and he died for us. Even while we were yet sinners, as a result, since we're in Christ, we do not have to fear condemnation in our relationship with him either. So we don't have to feel fear condemnation from Jesus or the Father. And the Bible says that Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead. That's true. We just read that the father committed all judgment to Jesus, but that doesn't mean he's harsh or judgmental. When Jesus lays out his judgment at the end of, time, at the, end of the days, it's gonna be the most just, perfect judgment that we could ever imagine. It's not gonna to be too much. It's not gonna to be too little. It's not gonna be harsh. It's not gonna be mean. It's not gonna be like, oh, you did this. It's not gonna be vindictive. It's gonna be perfect. It's gonna be the perfect level of judgment judgment metered by mercy those are the those are the two sides judgment and mercy are the same coin and we forget that jesus is merciful and is the judge so it'll be both all right let's continue on another scripture that shows us shows the point that god is not judgmental is jeremiah 31 jeremiah 31 says the Lord has appeared of old, uh, of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. So this is, the, this is the, the mean Old Testament God that we're talking about. This is in Jeremiah. And he's saying that I have loved you with an everlasting love. This is what we were talking about earlier. The love that never started. It was just there. He has always loved you. With loving kindness, the Father has drawn you. <clears throat> So it's the tender affections in the heart of God that has drawn you into relationship with Him. So when we're still sinning and stuff like that, those those little inklings that we feel from the Holy Spirit drawing us, that's the Father. It's the heart of the Father that is drawing us into relationship with Him and His Son uh, to make us sons and daughters in sonship. The Father draws you with loving kindness. Let's break down loving kindness a little bit. So in the scripture, the Hebrew root word for loving kindness is kessed. This means strong, loyal love and tenderness and loving acts of kindness. That's how the Father feels about you. So we also see from this verse that God loves you with an everlasting love. So we've been focusing on it not having a beginning, but it also never ends. So, an everlasting love that's not ending, it has no beginning, and he has loved you from forever. All right. Next point, which is the father who is a proud, loving father. So, it's essential to understand how much the father loved Jesus in order to understand his love and how he feels about you. So I'm going to read John 17, verse 20 and 30, 22. I do not pray for these alone, but for also uh, those who will believe in me through their word, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that you uh, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Now this is an amazing reality. The Father's love that he has for Jesus is the very same love that he has for you. It's not different, it's not less than, it's the exact same. So let me say that another way. The same measure or amount of love that the Father feels for Jesus is the same amount of love that he feels for you. Imagine how much God loves the perfect spotless one, who is Jesus and has never sinned. That same delight and pleasure that Jesus brings to the Father's heart is the same delight and pleasure that you bring to the Father's heart. Let me read Mark 1. This is... This is, a good, this is a good example of how the Father loves Jesus. And then we're going to pull from that, how the, how the, how the Father loves us. So we've all heard this, but it's, it's always good to hear again. So it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from the heavens, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Three times in the Bible, the eternal father broke in on earth and thundered audibly from heaven to declare his love and affection for Jesus. God split the heavens so that we would know how much he loves Jesus. But based on what we see in John 17, he also split the heavens so that you would know that you are his beloved child. John 17, we just read it. The father loves you the same way he loves Jesus. An important note, in Mark 1, this was before Jesus started his ministry. By the world standard, Jesus had done nothing to deserve or merit this love, but the father declared it over him anyways. In the same way, the father doesn't love you for what you can do for him, but for who you are. Like He's a a proud, loving father. Let's pause and think about this. This is your identity. You are his child, the one that he loves, and in whom he is well-pleased. Just for emphasis, I'll say it again. So, you are his child. The everlasting God. The one that he loves. You are the one that he loves. And you are the one in whom he is well pleased. It's not your accomplishments or successes in this life that make you well pleasing to the Father because he said it over us before we even did anything. He said it over Jesus before he did anything. This is the heart of the Father. Just like we saw in Ephesians 1, we do not have to be afraid that he'll be disappointed in us because we are holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. All right, so the Father who rejoices over you so this is the next one. I think this is the other verse that I told you. Luke 15. Yes. So we're going to read through Luke 15 here in a second. So we see in Luke 15 the story of who God is as the Father who celebrates you. Okay? All right. Let's read it real quick. So then Jesus said... A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that fall to me, inheritance. <clears throat> so he divided, uh, divided to him his livelihood. And not many days after that, the younger son gathered all and journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. This was something else we discovered. We always thought prodigal living was backslidden. No, prodigal living, the definition is spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. So think about that. Let's kind of break that down before we get to the next part. You have a son. He comes to you, says, Dad, you've worked your entire life to acquire all this land and animals and you've worked really hard. You're old. I don't want to be around you anymore. I'm out. Give me my stuff. I'm going to go. Right? That's basically what he did. And then he goes to another country far away. And then he wastefully and extravagantly spends all of the work that his father has done. Well, half of it. There's two sons. So. <clears throat> all right. Let's go back. But when he, had spent, uh, when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and, he, be, and he, began in want. he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to the citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swines ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, a bread enough and to spare, and I will perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Okay, before we step into this next section, I want you to put yourself in a position where you have done something that you would perceive as super shameful. Think about this guy. He wasted half of his father's stuff, went into poverty, super wasteful, and this is the way he feels. He's like, I'm not even good enough to be your son. We can all relate with instances of when we've done stuff, we've messed up, and we felt that way. Now in this next section... This is how the father thinks of you. This is what the father in heaven is doing every time that you mess up. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. And he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robes and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here, and kill it, and let let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So, an important part for us, he still went on with his plan. After the father had already rose up, so the father sees him, immediately has compassion, He's an old guy because he has inheritance. So he runs as an old guy. Very, it's very like uncouth in Jewish society for old men to run. He would have like gird up his robes to run to meet his son, but he doesn't. He wraps his arms around his child and kisses his son. And then he throws him a party. But the son still says what he was planning on saying, saying, I'm not good enough. I'm I'm not good enough to be even a servant in your house. Let me, I'm I'm definitely not your son. I'm probably not even good enough to be a servant, but let me be a servant so I can eat. But that's not what the father's doing. And this is how the father feels about us. Every time that you feel shame, And you go to the Father and say, Father, I sinned. I'm not good enough. This is what he's doing. He sees you a far way off. Before you even decide to turn and go to him, he sees you. He has compassion for who you are and where you're at in that position. The Father in heaven, everlasting, turns and runs towards you. He wraps his arms around you and he kisses you and then throws a party because you've returned. All right. I think, yes, this is the last trait that we want to talk about. And this is the father has made us heirs. So let me read a couple verses. Uh, Romans eight fifteen through seventeen, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba Father. The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, we may also be glorified together. And then Galatians four six through seven. And because you are my sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then the heir of God through Christ. This is what I was talking about earlier. The the cry in our heart towards God from the Holy Spirit, that drawing that the Holy Spirit's doing is Abba, Father. So we can see from these verses that the Father put the Holy Spirit in us for more than just power. We often think the Holy Spirit's there so that we could do things that Jesus did, cast out demons, heal the sick, all that. But it's much more than that. The Holy Spirit lives in us in order to continually affirm our hearts that we are the children of the Father. He sent the Spirit of God within us to draw us in relationship with him. As a father, it is the Holy Spirit within us that is instructing our spirit to embrace the cry of Abba in our heart. Abba means daddy, essentially. So that's, that's what the Holy Spirit is putting, that's the cry that the Holy Spirit is putting on your heart to cry out to the father. So if that's the way that the Holy Spirit thinks that we should relate to God, then I think that the way that we often view the Father is a little far off. So the reality is is that God has made us heirs to his kingdom. An heir is an inheritor or beneficiary. The Father doesn't consider us slaves, but sons and daughters. The same as Jesus, the the spotless one, to whom he's going to give all things. The entire world is going to go to Jesus. All of the glory is going to go to Jesus. We're inheritors with Jesus. He does not think of us as in a lowly way where he's taking pity on us and giving us things because he feels bad about us in our condition. So in, another, in other words, God isn't sitting up there and saying, oh, those poor humans, they're so lowly. They don't know what they're doing. I'm going to take pity on them. I don't want to give them things because they're so pathetic. That's not what he's doing. That's the opposite of what he's doing. He made us heirs because it's what brought him the greatest amount of joy to his heart. He loves us for who we are. All right, so let's look at a couple of verses that show that. Romans eight twenty and 32 For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be firstborn among many brethren. He who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So going back to Romans. That last line. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also freely give us all things? So the point there is that the father gave his only son Jesus who is God he had God put on flesh and came and died on a cross in a shameful way for us so that Jesus could break the barrier between us and the Father that was created from the fall because the Father desires to have a father-child relationship with us. Because Because the Father loves us so much that he would give Jesus for us. Okay, so far, we've talked about orphan mentality, kind of what it looks like, some traits of it. We've talked about traits of who the Father really is and how he's revealed in the Word. So let's talk. I'm going to give you like four points. They're not like action items, but they're like points on overcoming orphan mentality, just kind of steps that you can think of as you're working through it. All right, so now let's talk about what we can do with this. We all have had some we all have some piece of orphan mentality. Like I said at the beginning, there's some measure of it in all of us. This belief affects how we think, act, live, relate with others, and how we relate with God. And we need to see where it's a part of our beliefs so that we can get free from it, repent, and bring it to God to overcome. So, the first point in overcoming orphan mentality, and this is super important. Orphan mentality is not something that you can cast out. It's not a demon that you bear. It's not something you can cast out and get rid of because it consists of ungodly beliefs and or attitudes that have been developed over a lifetime. We're seeing the things that were modeled to us and we're prescribing those things to God. So it's it's not something that can be cast out. It's actually something that becomes part of our personality and the way that we view life. So, you might be asking, can't cast it out, how do we deal with it? These points here. So, first, it must be displaced by personal experience of the Father's love and revelation of acceptance. This requires continual meditation on the word of God regarding God's emotions towards us. Just like us experiencing Jesus as a bridegroom, it's something that will continually happen as we lean into intimacy with the Father. So when we feel that we are truly at home in the Father's love, this is a benefit or a point of overcoming it. We will not be consistently consumed with fears, anxieties, control, isolation, insecurity, lust, addiction, Compulsion, or dutiful striving. We can be confident and secure without regard to our performance or position. We can be liberated to love God and love people lavishly. This is a continual process, it takes time and intentionality, but we can grow our level of uh, confidence in God's love for us. All right, last point of the four. God fully answered the orphan mentality through the sacrifice of his son. He offered Jesus so that the barrier between us and God would be broken down so that he might adopt us as his own children. So this is kind of the point that I was talking about earlier. He sent Jesus so that that barrier that was created could be broken. And he answered the orphan mentality because like I said, it's experiential. So now we can personally interface with the Father and learn who He is. It is possible for us to believe, receive, and then experience God as a Father. It is who He is, and it is who we are. We are His children. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that this message ministered to you and that the Lord met you. You can follow us on Instagram at GatekeepersATL. We'll see you in the next episode.